All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuckstables? What the fucking ears? What the fucking knots? What the fucksters? How are you? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF, my show, my podcast. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you being here. God, what episode are we on? What episode is this? Number 425. That is the episode number, 425. I had no idea that I would do 425 of these, that I would have 425 conversations with different people. It's astounding. We're coming up on our four-year anniversary. It's amazing. I had, I just had no idea that this would be what I would be doing, and it would be so fucking great. Is that crazy? Life is strange, man. You never know what the fuck was going to... You just don't know what the hell is going to happen. You can sit there all day long in your head and think like, all right, I got a plan. Uh, here's what's going to happen. Uh, here are the options of what's going to happen. This is how it's going to go down. And boom, you're living outside. I, who knows? You know, God forbid, but you know what I'm saying. You just don't know all the things that I do in my brain to somehow insulate or protect myself from surprises, basically. That's, it seems like that's what our brains do. It's a, it, it's, it's a, a surprise stifler. I spend a lot of time in my head just uh, working the angle so I don't get caught off guard. Holy shit, where's my car? Where are my shoes? I can barely remember my name. I mean, obviously, that's, again, a stretch, but why don't we, why don't we look on the other side? I'm fucking done. It's over. What? I'm doing a show out of my garage and I'm talking to Baratunde Thurston today? Yes, that's what happened. That's the way it went. I'm sitting here in my garage, doing my job, 425. It's, a, it's not even an anniversary or anything. It's just a, it's a hell of a number, isn't it? Baratunde Thurston is on the show. He's a writer. Uh, he's written several books, four, I believe. And the, uh, the one that, uh, I think the latest one is How to Be Black. So there will be a little of that talk. I know how much uh, some of you like or hate when I talk race with somebody who I've decided is an authority on race, but I think if somebody writes a book called how to be black, I'm entitled to ask a few questions. Also a very funny guy who was an onion writer who wrote about politics for years. Great guy, great conversation. So look forward to that. Let me, can I say this? So I'm going to be in Rochester this weekend on Saturday at the Rochester uh, Fringe Fest, Saturday, September 21st. I'll be there with uh, Nate Bargetzi. I I'm thrilled to be working with that guy because you know how much I love him. Uh, the following Tuesday, September 24th, I'll be at uh, Just for Last 42 in Toronto, Ontario, doing one show there at the Queen Elizabeth Theater. And please go get your tickets for the Los Angeles Podcast Festival at LAPodcast.com. Go do that, will you? You want to update on the, the second season of Marin? I think I can start doing that. I think I can start telling you what's happening a little bit. I'm at work every day. I am uh, I'm at work. I go to an office with five or six other guys, and we sit there and we try to build my life as a fiction for the show Marin. What's going to happen the second season? I can tell you a little bit. I can tell you that uh, we've come up with some very funny stories. Uh, most of them are sort of founded in my life. I can tell you that the mark that you will see in the second season of Marin is a little bit more successful than he was in the uh, first season of Marin, but not so successful that he feels successful necessarily, but he's successful enough to struggle with that success. 
Is that is that enough of a hint for you? I I I think we're going to see more Judd Hirsch as my dad. I believe we will see some more Sally Kellerman as my mother. But you know we're a little far out from casting, month or two, so I can't make any promises. I believe you will see some more of uh, of uh, Josh Brenner as uh, as my assistant. I believe these things will happen, and obviously some uh, podcast guests. I know the stories are good. I know they are funny. The ones that we're crunching, the ones that we're breaking are funny. I'm very excited to be doing the work. I'm also excited to be uh, doing stand-up. How about a deaf black cat update? All right, so where were we when I last left you? Oh, I trapped him, and I brought him to the vet, and I was going to go pick him up. He stayed at the vet over the weekend. Some of you saw the picture I tweeted of deaf black cat post-vet. He hung out. They uh, filled him with fluids. They shot him up with morphine. They gave him some antibiotics. They uh, they uh, drained and scraped the abscess off ar- around his eye. They gave him a few stitches and uh, they put him in a cage. And my doc said, that cat is a wild cat. And I said, hell yeah, he's wild. And they cut his balls off. He still had his balls. He's been out there six or seven years. I haven't seen any kittens. I haven't seen any new feral cats. I don't know how hot a deaf cat is to other cats. I don't know if he picks up on all the signals necessary to get himself laid, but I imagine all you need is a good sense of smell and, uh, and, a, and a good, powerful attitude to get laid as a cat. And sight helps as well. You need to know where you're putting it. So the deaf black cat story has you know has engaged people and uh so i brought him home and he was pretty tweaked out he looked a little exhausted in the cage and i felt bad here's the here was my issue is that all right this cat is a wild fucking animal there's no doubt that this cat is wild as shit and there's no keeping a wild cat in the house with my cats he would just freak out then i thought like well maybe he needs to go in the garage for a few days or maybe he could live in the garage but then i remembered these wild ass cats when i trapped them when i first got them all four of them in my apartment in astoria queens i would go to bed at night they would hide under couches behind stoves you know anywhere they could not be seen or 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 heard by me they would stash themselves and then as soon as i went to bed there was just a cat party out there they destroyed a couch they destroyed some books they destroyed uh, some pillows you know a cat that doesn't want to be somewhere and you make them be there if there's shit around for them to express their anger they will certainly do that type of art for you so I asked the doc, I said, well, look, you know, what, do I, what am I going to do for follow-up here? He said, look, we gave him antibiotics that'll last two weeks. You just got to let him go and hope for the best. So I let him go. Once he realized the cage door was open, I'd never seen an animal move that quickly. He, he almost, it looked like he was shot out of the cage and just ran down the steps onto the patio and into the bushes. I mean, like, like shot out. I haven't seen him since. I haven't seen him since Monday. I'm talking to you on a Thursday morning. I did get a nice email, a nice cat story. You know, some of these emails, you know, I read them and I get choked up and, but that, but this uh, subject line is just, uh, Hey Mark, just listen to your story of the deaf black cat. Felt I should share my cat story. My friends made me get a kitten six years ago because they thought I was a depressed, alcoholic, lonely fuck up and needed some love at home, which which they couldn't give me. 
Well, I am a depressed alcoholic fuck up, but that's another story. Anyway, my cat is a fat orange bastard who I love to death. When I moved to California from Texas, assuming all of California equals Santa Monica slash San Francisco, huge mistake. California away from the coast might as well be Oklahoma. And I mean that in a derogatory Bible thumper bigot sense. Obviously, not everyone is like that, but sometimes I need to vent. Bakersfield is a shithole. The cat, his name is The Dude, stopped eating for a week. I, fat, bearded Indian guy, took him to the vet. The vet said he needed to keep him in observation and give him antibiotics and IV fluids. I, fat, bearded, 33-year-old Indian guy, started bawling. Not manly, quiver crying, followed by a steely gaze, but full-on wailing. They told me I could call slash come in any time in the night and check on the cat, so I called 12 times-ish, went to see him at 6 a.m. with an old shirt and a toy, bald again, missed work, laid in bed wondering how much of a horrible person I was to have let this cat fall sick. Did I mention I'm an alcoholic? The next day when they released the cat, the vet told me he needed my help getting the cat out of the cage. The duder was very unhappy, growling, hissing at everyone, wouldn't let anyone touch him or even try, but he let me. The minute I put my hand in that cage, he stopped growling and nuzzled. It was utterly overwhelming because for whatever reason, never in my life have I experienced anything like that. That kind of blind trust in an emotional fuck up like me. Maybe the clinical view is that I am my cat's key to survival or whatever. Maybe I'm making a huge deal out of it, but it killed me to feel that I am worthy of trust and love. Anyway, just wanted to share that with you. Love your podcasts. Listening to you has helped a lot in my recovery. I still struggle daily, but got to keep plowing on. Cheers. And uh, I'll leave his name out of this because it's very specific. But that is a very sweet email, man. Yeah, you can't underestimate the power of uh, the unconditional love of animals. Or with cats, the uh, occasionally conditional love of animals. I'll let you know if Deaf Black Cat shows up. All right? I'll let you know. And now I think it's only I think it's only fair that we talk to Baratunde Thurston. Now how do oh, what do I say? Baratunde? That's perfect. I am I'm proud of you, Mark. Baratunde. Baratunde. You did it. Yeah. I I mean it's you're already you're already ahead. <laughs> Wait, what did you get? Oh, I get I get uh, so many things. I get <clears throat> Uh, Bartholomew. Bartholomew. Baratundra. There's a whole tundra. There's a whole chapter in my book that's just about the name. Um, I get Barry. In uh, which, which which book? How to, How be, to black? be black? Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and what does that cover? Why do uh, some black people have names that are difficult for us white people to pronounce? It's uh, it's we never got the forty acres. Yeah. So. so. You- that was it. <laughs> it's, we'll a, it's an incremental yeah. retribution. So it was a generation of black parents saying, "I'm going to connect him they, yeah. to the real shit." Exactly. And so, that, so what's uh, what is the genealogy of Baratunde? So Baratunde is a version of Babatunde, yeah. which is a Nigerian name from the Yoruba people of Nigeria. It means uh, father or grandfather returns and my mother was a huge fan of her grandfather uh-huh. and I took a while to show up right so it also in the book that she and my father found it in it meant uh, one who was chosen right and that was important to her because 
she'd had a bunch of miscarriages before uh-huh. I arrived. They're like, finally, this kid is here. Yeah. Let's do it. So this is the one that made it. Yes. Do you have brothers and sisters? I have one older sister, Belinda. So they had one. Yeah. And they wanted another. One more. Kept trying. There you go. Different different, uh, now, different but, fathers, though. Was this book, uh, now do you, is Nigeria, is there any connection to Nigeria? Does Yeah, that, they read it in a book. That's it. That connection was literary. <laughs> so the genealogy part. There is no, no, yeah, there's no, no genealogy. That, that, <laughs> too much effort there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because you could have been from several places, a lot theoretically. Of, a lot of people, um, a lot of Nigerians get very excited. When they hear when you. When they first meet me. Yeah. They get confused. And then they start like, talking to you in Nigerian. And they, there is nothing. Yeah, where do you meet Nigerians? Bert, They're right? everywhere. Nigerians are, are a massive population. They've kind of taken over. In New York. In New are they York, the ones that are DC, selling the watches? A lot of people sell watches in New York. I'm not sure which heavier group of African but, immigrants right. is, is hard on the watch selling right. in Times Square. You haven't done that research? I haven't. You know, that's part two. <laughs> Who's selling me these watches? <laughs> the, the sequel how to, to How to Be Black. Yeah. So I, uh, what what do you do, man? <laughs> I, mean, the, I mean, the last time... <laughs> Like I, I know you're a writer. I know you're at the Onion in uh, in an overseeing an oversight capacity, and as a writer, I know you've written some books. But the last time I saw you, you were like, yeah, "I'm doing a thing with the tech thing. <laughs> I got some big ideas. Yeah. Here's a a card. This is an example of something we're thinking about." Yeah. I had no fucking clue. <laughs> That's a great what? question, man. <laughs> so uh, I've been doing stand up for a long time, about eleven years. And that's one of my like core things. Now I'm, wait a I'm minute, you can't. Comedy. All right, so all right, so you've been doing stand up, so stand up, eleven years. Yeah, started in Boston. Okay, with the Merman crew. Uh, just after the Merman crew. So with Mike the comedy, Kaplan. Mike Kaplan, yeah, he's comedy a studio, Rick Jenkins, that whole. So you gang. were of the the Mike Kaplan generation, yes, sir. the smarty pants generation, <laughs> yes. the people that were heavily educated. There you go. And decided like, why not try this? I've got a backup plan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fine. All right. Um, and so what I'm doing now since leaving The Onion is yeah. I started this company with two other Onion alums uh, called Cultivated Wit. We're taking this idea of humor yeah. and technology and creativity and throwing it into a big pile. Okay. And saying, what can we do at the intersection of those things that's interesting? Yeah. Okay. So... We're building some secret app stuff that's going to be amazing. Secret when we, apps. When we release that. Baratunde's got secret, secret apps. Secret apps, baby. He is the chosen one. <laughs> no, one who was chosen. There's a big oh, difference. Okay. Oh, a lot less pressure. A lot less pressure. <laughs> one who was chosen. Yeah, there could be a thousand chosen. With one who was chosen, there's just expectation. Yeah. With the chosen one, you better not disappoint. There's certain death. Yeah. You, you, you don't know what you're chosen for. You no. just know you were chosen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So this is this vague app. So we, so we have uh, some app notions. Uh-huh. Uh, one one project that we're working on that's not a core thing, but we're partnering with people is yeah. to do a, a satirical location-based racism app mm-hmm. that would tell you how racist the area around you is based on all kinds of data from social media. Oh, really? From you, the government. Could you could you maybe do it to the point where you can actually have it vo- voice sensitive to someone talking to you? That's and- a great new feature to add <laughs> to the roadmap. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> voice recognition of racism without the actual language of racism? That's uh, mm-hmm. just the tone. Right. Wow. The, yeah. I mean, as a joke, it would be. I, I no, would, no, no. I would think that if you really tried to engage that technology, you'd be racist. There you go. <laughs> and it, would, it would blow up in your face. You'd it become would. that yeah. which yeah. you despise. Yes. Um, and then we've been working with companies to help them, organizations, use humor in the way they deal with people, in the way they deal with their audiences, yeah. with their so customers. So whose team are you on, man? 
I'm on my team. Okay. I'm on the team of truth and freedom. <laughs> okay. Um, and then the big thing that we just pulled off our second version of is this thing called Comedy Hack Day. And it's not hack from the comedic sense. It's hack from the technology developer sense. Okay. Software developers, comedians, designers to build funny apps in a weekend. They all come together. Well, actually, yeah, you want me to judge that? Yeah. Actually, um, Kamau was one of our judges. W. Yeah. Bell. So we pulled that off in San Francisco at Twitter's headquarters. The winning app was made by these kids from Stanford. Yeah, of and course. The app is called Citation Needed, and it basically lets you validate the bullshit you tell your friends that they don't believe, and you've just made it up. Right. You're wrong. You can quickly basically create a clone of a Wikipedia page, yeah. which says the thing you just said uh-huh. about the thing that you said it about. So you're uh, like, oh, Margaret Thatcher was in the KGB? I don't believe it. So you're helping people lie. Yeah. Oh, good, man. Yeah. That is the future. And there you go. Yeah. There you go. The future is to get as far away from the <laughs> organic and the human as possible uh, and, and uh, you know, insulate everybody in a, in a cocoon of snark and bullshit. There you go. Oh, good. I'm glad you're helping. <laughs> you're That's so a- welcome, Mark. You're so welcome. <laughs> Where did you come from? D.C. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in D.C. Was your family in politics? Not exactly. Well, it depends on how you find politics. My mother was an activist, so yes. Not like electoral politics. What style? In the street, waving signs, taking over radio stations. For- uh, Pan-African. Oh, okay. black left Right, right, right. The fist. Hippie stuff. The fist. I got an afro rake right here. If there's an icon of the type of politician you are, (laughs) she was the fist. This right here with the comb. I got an afro rake. What? (laughs) Where did you get that? Uh, uh, a black fan <laughs> hey, gave it to me. Mailed it in or handed Bonafide Afro Rake. Wow, that's beautiful. She's a black fan in Utah, so she's alone out there, bro. She, that might have been her only yeah. black power pick yeah, available I, within a thousand miles, yeah, and I now guess, you have it. I guess they still make them. Yeah, I used to, I actually I carved one of those out of wood one summer. <laughs> I, was that, I was that dedicated. <laughs> Where? Where'd <laughs> it, you do that? I did it at some summer camp. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Was that was that your protest? <laughs> <laughs> Protesting this tree. Yeah, man. Mine now. So you grew up in that environment? Yeah, I grew up in in the eighties DC and saw the neighborhood go through that change. That, so that, that was the uh, the, the flag. African flag period. Yeah, yeah. Red, black, and green. Everything. Right. Poor righteous teachers. Right. Brand Nubian. Um, fight the power. Right. You know all that, and we were. Basically, crack and you know DC crack was a little deeper uh, in the. There's heavy crack around DC. Wherever the, I guess the uh, the center of power, the 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 bad shit around the center of power really has to go over the top. Yeah, you know they have to. They have a lot to prove. There you go. Like they they don't half step it. Those are the people that say they're going to fix this. Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Fix it across the street, asshole. Yeah, yeah. So yes, I grew up there with mom and and my older sister. Yeah, where was the old man? Uh, the old man was killed. Uh, the old man was killed when I was six. Didn't know him very well. He was shot in a drug deal. Um, and I, I have a set number of memories of him, like six of them. Yeah. And What are they? Off the top of my head, uh, there was, I probably won't hit all six. I, I wrote about him in the book because there was like a, a moment. But one was drinking beer with him in his pickup truck. He was a construction worker. At five? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Good it's dad. Disgusting. You know, driving, <laughs> drinking beer, and giving his young son the opportunity to drink beer. Uh, there's a good example. That was great. That right. was great. He was, uh, he, was, he was doing it perfectly. Yeah. Uh, there was a time he got me a big bag of- Weed? Gifts. Oh. <laughs> I didn't know how far we were going to go. No, that was, that was the limit. That was the limit of the direct bad the beer. influence. Yeah. yeah. 
big bag of toys. Yeah. Um, I remember the moment my mother told me he was dead. Yeah. Uh, I remember going to hang out. He had a huge family. and They weren't together. No, not by well, the time I came along, he was no longer living right. uh, in the house. Right. So he was- I don't For know, good actually, reason, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely good Your reason. Your mom was like protecting the brood yeah, from she the was, bad. There you go. Right. There you go. Yeah. So he was a bad, he, was, uh, he loved me a lot, but he wasn't a great guy. Yeah. And, but he had this massive family. And I don't know, I'm not in touch with any of them at this point because we were so severed. From, I was a kid, I didn't know. And mm-hmm. my mom, you know, we lived elsewhere and I didn't know the names of anybody. Yeah. But I remember being at this house party and uh, I was in the basement with a bunch of other kids. I was definitely the youngest. They were like, to me, they were grown ups. So they were yeah. probably early teens. And they were playing a little game with me where they would tell me to stand up. Yeah. And then they grabbed my belt from right. behind me and like yanked me back down. Yeah. And then they'd tell me, oh, go over there and get that thing. And uh, they had fun at my expense. That was right, the point. Right. And I, I did not like them. Yeah. So yeah. Maybe and that's why I'm not in touch. Those are your memories. That's yeah. the basement memory. And then and then finding uh finding his death certificate. Really? You yeah. found, when when did that happen? That was when I was somewhere between sort of eight and twelve ish. Like now, you, you, to know do you carry his name? No. No, I carry my my mother's last name, Thurston. Uh, his last name was Robinson. Right. Yeah. And you and there's no desire to go dig up that side of the clan. Not really. Yeah. No. I, I guess that, that makes sense. I mean. I mean, at some point, I am curious, but it's not one of those things like, I got to solve the mystery of my father's family. And yeah. if I meet them, that's cool. <laughs> I'm not against them. I'm not like, stay away from me. Yeah, I don't yeah. have restraining orders out against just, the whole group of people. You just made sure you didn't have the same name. <laughs> that wasn't my choice either. <laughs> like, you're a kid. You're, you don't pick your name. Yeah. Uh, well, it sounded like your mom uh, did the right thing by you guys. I oh, mean, she, you she did great. That was the reason? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I think the reason was a couple. I mean, my father was one piece, but also the way my mom was raised wasn't great. And she didn't have the greatest. She had a terrible relationship with her mother. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of her efforts in raising me and my sister were trying to fix the things that weren't done well with her. Wasn't it interesting, though? I, I mean, I, I've wondered about this, and I understand it on a, a sort of uh, personal and, and uh, y- you know, uh, diseased relationship way. You know, why do good women end up with these fuckheads? You, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just very interesting to me when you hear stories of anybody mm-hmm. whose mom sort of, like, you know, did the right thing by their kids, yeah. obviously, to get them out of the, the potential, you know, shit. How does she end up with that guy in the first place? Well, a lot of times that guy doesn't start off as that guy. Oh, they're very charming, I guess. Yes. I yeah. mean, some of the most heinous dudes yeah. are the most charming. Yeah. Or yeah, they yeah. don't start you, off. You don't got to tell way. me. <laughs> I feel like you have maybe experience with some of this. So yeah, it's not I don't think anyone ever seeks, you know, an abusive relationship. Right. It happens to you. And then sometimes it happens so slowly that you just wake up one day and you were like, Whoa, I'm in a I'm in a situation here. Right. And then leaving that situation becomes dangerous and risky and right. where's your housing? I mean, I'm not saying this is exactly my mother's situation, right. but I've seen enough right. through her example and, and, and other friends, like it's never I'm like I want a bad guy. Oh, I got a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. Why do I have a bad guy? Yeah, and now I've got a bad guy and two of the bad guy's kids. Yeah, <laughs> how yeah. the fuck that, did that? That's happen? rarely like what people set out to do with their lives. <laughs> <It> just, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> so you grew up in the shit then. I grew up in a in a piece of the shit. I mean, there yeah. are definitely there were many more shitty neighborhoods than the precise one I grew up in, um, and I was I think I had a protective bubble largely my mother around me yeah so a lot of things that happened to friends around me 
just missed happening to me and I wasn't in the roughest part of DC. Like what kind of things happened? So just, I mean, when you look at the group of friends that I grew up with, the ones who ended up in jail, the ones who ended up dead, uh, I I was not, I never went to jail. Yeah. Right. I never, I got harassed by cops. Right. Just because. I, right. Just for being, yeah. you know, yeah. at, at the time and space that I was being, not necessarily for doing. Um, I never did take up selling drugs. Yeah. Right. I never, not not once. Yeah. Right? yeah. So that was, that was good. That was a but good But you choice. were aware that these were choices that were being made yeah. it was happening to you when you were in high school, you were old enough to see the shit go down. And what, and the timing of it was. Yeah. Elementary school, I lived right in this neighborhood, Columbia Heights in D.C. Yeah. It's a totally different neighborhood now. It's very shiny, like so many yeah. newly shined right. They moved, neighborhoods. moved them out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah oh, yeah. people are like, oh, wow, it's nice to live close to things. I'm yeah. coming back. Yeah, yeah, So it's yeah. kind of the opposite of white flight uh, and money flight. Well, that's happening a lot all over, but that's I right. always wonder how do, where do the displaced people go? Out. <laughs> they keep going further. They just up. keep going away underground. I, I, there yeah. are tunnels. Yeah, they yeah. got. The, is there underground population? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like in the Matrix, where it's like Zion and there's those a big the new, rave. Those are the new black neighborhoods. Yeah, it's just all raves all the time. Everybody's shirtless. It's hot, but no one cares, and nobody ever sees it. Yeah, yeah. It's completely secret. <laughs> it but I hear the music society. is amazing. They're it's doing the shit. best, most innovative. It's real underground. They're pushing the envelope. You know, <laughs> how do you get entrance into these things? You just get invited <laughs> yeah yeah you can't knock on a so door. okay so columbia heights <laughs> yeah so um so i lived there and then my mother moved us out moved me out. my sister's nine years ahead of me so she left the household much sooner than you know i was i was nine years old when she went off to, to school and we went out to tacoma park maryland which is yeah. right on the border right of dc and that was much chiller we yeah. had a yard yeah that was new right it was quiet right that was new. Right. You know, those sirens going constantly, people yelling at each other. And there wasn't people on the stoop or in the street. Not right anything. there. I mean, right down the block, though, was a street called Maple Avenue. Mm-hmm. And that was an epicenter of all sorts of urban economic activity. That's a very uh, nice way to put it. <laughs> yeah, drug dealing. But you and managed, you managed to stay away from drugs? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, didn't I, try it? I tried drugs later. So I didn't even, I didn't drink through college. I want. I was kind of nervous about drinking, yeah. Because I just generally liked my life. I thought I had a pretty good deal here. I managed to navigate or be navigated through some crazy scenarios. Come out relatively unscathed. That's cool. Why fuck it up? Why fuck it up? <laughs> and I'm happy. Like I know I can have fun. You can identify happiness. Yeah. So I didn't. I thought drinking might ruin it. Right. And I don't know what would I would be like yeah. when I got drunk. So through college, I actually didn't drink. I had I first got drunk after college. Actually, right when I turned twenty one, some friends uh, that I worked with on the newspaper they took me out. And we had one of the Scorpion Bowls at, oh, yeah, the, at Hong at Kong the, at the Hong Kong the comedy yeah. studio. Uh, so that was the first time, and then it was like a yeah, year or so a, later. That's a hell of a baptism. Yeah, that's because it, it's so sweet. Yeah, through the big straws, it's drinking liquid candy. Yeah, 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 and then you are dead. Well, how'd you navigate <laughs> all this shit? I mean, if you're if you were you know because you did all right for yourself, yeah. it seems. But I, I have to assume that the struggle was different than what I might have experienced. Yeah, so partly, uh, and I can't, I really can't overstate the mom thing. She kept me very busy. Yeah. Like a lot of extra programs and stuff. So, like what? Like what so, were your interests? So I was in school yeah. and academic achievement was expected Yeah. from my sister, you know, from, from my mother, from my sister and me. Public school. Public school early for the first half mm-hmm. and then switched over to private school yeah. in seventh grade. Now, what were your interests? Because you're kind of a tech geek now. I mean, were you... You know, because I've talked to people that, 
you know, you, you make assumptions about you know people's uh, environment. Yeah. But I mean, were you sort of like some kind of nerdy little kid? Or what? I wasn't. I was a nerd. I was a nerd with friends. Yeah. Right. So I was able to like skate the line a little bit. I wasn't t- an outcast. Was it all black school? The first school I went to, Bancroft Elementary, was all black and Latino. There were two white kids in our class. But you found a crew of black nerds? Yeah, we were all... We, in fact, there was a, a club. One of our teachers, Yeah, she knew the, uh, some of the Tuskegee Airmen, uh, like the original superheroes. Yeah, yeah. And she started this air and space club yeah. in our public elementary school in like yeah. 1987. Yeah. So I joined that. Yeah. And we went to the Air and Space Museum. We just talked about space a lot and like read books. And, and you like, got that resource of DC right there and it's all Yeah, right the museums there. are all free. Amazing. There's so it was, I mean, just looking back on that, like that's not normal today. You know, schools yeah. have so little resource. This was a public school right down the with block. With a teacher that took interest. With a teacher that took interest and made things happen. That's what it takes. And I met Tuskegee Airmen when I was maybe 10 years old. Really? Yeah. Did and they wear their outfit? They, I think they had a lot of medals yeah, and yeah. stuff on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, yeah. they, they were alive. Hats. Most of them, I think, are some of them maybe still alive. I Very don't know. few now. Right. Very few now. My mother was, I mean, this was a much bigger deal to her. Yeah. Because she knew what it meant. I'm like, old guys with medals. Yeah. Yay. Yeah, they flew planes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I want to maybe do that someday. Yeah, yeah. So it was things like that. My mom put me in the Boy Scouts. It was yeah, this yeah. all-black Boy Scout troop. Right. Um, she put me in extra academic schooling there's a program in dc called higher achievement program right and the point is if you show any kind of promise we're going to throw more school work at you and make you even more prepared right to prep you to go to a prep school to go to college to like do something with yourself. and that's the ticket out right yeah that's that's part i mean that's that is one ticket out is certainly the one that's predominant right now like there's another ticket out which is like fix everything yeah uh super expensive super slow takes a lot of extra thought what do you mean fix everything well i mean the ticket out should be that you don't have to get out. Right. <laughs> right? I get it. So that's yeah, what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah. so The, the, the broader socioeconomic <laughs> governmental solution yeah. was not something you could bank on. That, that wasn't available from my uh, elementary yeah, school teacher. It's, 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 I don't, it's not clear that it's available for anywhere, any, yeah. for anybody yeah. anymore. So when so you she, yeah what? she kept me super busy. I mean I think that was a big part of my mom's program in terms. But of, you were motivated, obviously. Yeah, not, I mean I, I, the motivation comes from I don't know maybe there's some genetic thing. Yeah. I assume there's just part of this you're born with. Mm-hmm. Part of it your your environment, which is my mother is like you're going to do this, and this is the this is the minimum standard. How do you sort of like in, in your mind frame the idea? You know, this is coming from me, a white yeah. guy, and you know, and I, and I think it's. I don't, a, I don't see color. No, I know you don't. Of course not. <laughs> None of you guys do anymore. No, I definitely see color. <laughs> color blindness is I don't, ridiculous. I don't see that. I don't see color either. You're just a a guy who lived in a black neighborhood to yeah. me. <laughs> That's just something physically yeah. wrong with my eyes. I can't, yeah. I can't see color. No, but I mean, is there part of you that that feels that you somehow? Like, because one of the things that, that that Chris Rock differentiated early on in in a defining comedy bit mm-hmm. was that there was really you know several different black experiences yeah. culturally, yeah. and that there was a real difference between the black experiences of the black middle class and the black you know lower class. Yeah. Now, do, do you frame it in your mind that way that you somehow escaped something? I definitely feel like I escaped um, the the worst version of what I statistically should have experienced. Right. Right? Like, no jail, no death, no severe violence, right? There were some fights. Right. But no weaponry. Right. <laughs> right? And even with the police harassment, like, I'm here. 
Right. There's no photo of my banged up face, and that's right, not right. true. You're not on the videotape. Yeah, and I'm yeah. not in prison. Right. Like, I escaped that math. Right. And and by rights, not by rights, but by wrongs, probably I should be, given the time and place I was born in the D.C. and whatever. So, yeah, there's an escape mentality in that sense. It's like, whew. Yeah. Wow. Right. I beat the odds. Yeah. Right. And and it's, there's a, so there's a level of uh, a victory, I guess, or relief mm-hmm. associated with it, but it's a sad relief because you know, A, it could have been you. And B, it's still happening to people. Right. Every day. Yeah. yeah. And it's happened to people who were like right next to me when I was growing up and it's happening to, to kids and young men today. So that is a sour, you know, win. So were, yeah. were you motivated uh, intellectually early on to deal with that somehow or to reckon with it because of where your mother came from and because of what you were experiencing yourself? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was big in our house was some kind of service. Yeah. Right. We, I remember we went. Was that a religious thing? No, it wasn't. So religion was kind of an open thing in our house. You know, my mother did. I was baptized Catholic. Right. Really? It it wasn't because we were super Catholic. Right. It was because the church, the Catholic church does a lot of good in terms of social justice and poverty. and, And they hooked my mom up when, when my older sister was in a Catholic school and my mom could barely pay the tuition. They let her work it off. They let right. her answer phones or cook dinners or do some creative payment scheme. And she was like, yo, I'm down. Like, yeah. way to help me out. And so she but, and we, there were some really good priests at the at Sacred Heart. Was she brought church. up Catholic or did no, she No, she just, was brought up Baptist. So she just switched gears when they showed up for her. She Why actually, not? She switched gears um, when she was like in her late teens. Uh-huh. She got sick of white Jesus imagery. Yeah. And she got sick of uh, missionaries going over to Africa to save people. Yeah. And to her mind, and actually probably even early teens, she's like, what's wrong with what, how they worship? Why do you have to go tell them to do something different? Right. The language of referring to people as heathen. She was just offended by it. And they were just out there to it. franchise and consolidate. Yeah. And yeah, she, maybe, <laughs> I don't know, she just didn't, she wasn't down with that. Yeah, no, it makes so sense. So she, she dropped out, she opted out yeah, of but, that. But why Catholicism? I mean. Once again, the school was Well, I them, get it, but right? I mean, it's still white Jesus. And, uh, and so, and then that church, the Catholicism was a community connection and a community resource much more than it was a religious was it a black church it was heavily black and latino given the neighborhood yeah um and then i start i remember i switched to an episcopal church because it was right across the street nicer or it's closer yeah (laughs) they both have incense i was like this is pretty much the same thing robes scarves incense right but no the community thing is an interesting thing and i don't think it's talked about uh you know in terms about well, I mean, I remember that came out politically for a while with faith-based uh, initiative, mm-hmm. you know, to sort of displace and subcontract, you know, some government responsibility yeah. onto these organizations that were doing it anyways, yeah. which seemed a little a, a little dubious given that it was under the Bush administration that that sort of got pushed. But I, I think that people really forget, you know, especially, and I, I'm doing stuff on in my act now, that, yeah. you, you know, that that is where that shit happens. Yeah. That, you know, there's no practical solution to poverty on a governmental level that's got any teeth to it. But these these churches are out there in the street and it's their, it's part of their gig. You know, we're going to feed you. We're going to help you do what you need to do. Yeah. So that so that's interesting. So, all right. So you your mom switches over to that. Yeah. So and then I switched to Episcopal. Right. Because I'm like, I want to I want to walk less. Right. Um, and she also was going through. Her, her own like spiritual evolution she was buddhist for a while i remember going to 
Buddhist temple what, with the her. Nam Yeho Renge Kyo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so yeah. I, I was chanting that with my mom in T- the basement. Tina Turner style. <laughs> she's a huge. She was a huge Tina Turner. I wonder fan. if that's what inspired her to do that. Because then I it think that Tina did that. She that, definitely did. Yeah, yeah, and it was kind of popular in the, I think the early seventies. That's where it sort of hit. That, that would have I've been only the talked sweet spot. about right. Yeah, I yeah. talked to one other cat who grew up in that. Yeah, you know, Liam McEnany. You yeah, know? yeah, I yeah. know Liam. In fact, yeah. we're doing a show. Uh, very soon ago, uh, right tonight. All right, so, <laughs> so, so, how does this inform the young uh, Baratunde brain to you, you know whatever to to, act, yeah. to sort of intellectually actualizing the fight? So partly there was always we worked with a soup kitchen from the earliest years I can remember. As several, a kid, you as were, a kid, yeah. several days a week service. We go work in yeah. McKenna's wagon, this van that drives around DC and mm-hmm. serves people out of a thing called a uh, place called Martha's Table. Yeah. So that was predominant. Sidwell Friends School, which is the school I switched to out of the public school, community service baked in. Yeah. You got to do something. It's a great thing. Every week you're doing something. When I went up to Cambridge, I taught computer literacy classes, take my nerd stuff. Because it was- Teaching the projects there. But it was part of your wiring. Yeah. Because it was so early, it was- it became its nature. It's like, oh, I get up, I do this. Because I, you know, I wasn't brought up with you know even the idea of that. It wasn't mm. until I got into sobriety that the idea of service yeah. as something nourishing to your soul, yeah. you know, was even a possibility. And even then, I fought it. You know, I was like, I got to set up chairs. I don't want to make the <laughs> coffee. You know, but the the I you know once you learn about it, yeah. about the sort of the. The the grat the the sort of it is really a like a soul nourishing thing to to behave in a selfless way yeah but it's not I don't think it's innate and I and I think that do you think that because I've always wondered this only because I don't, I don't have any direct experience yeah. of it when there's a a community that is really up against itself that the need for you know for those within that community to to sort of guarantee the survival of the community mm-hmm. and also just to pr- deal practically with immediate problems. Do you think that 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 drive towards service is is something you see more in a black community? That is a great question. I'm thinking about it. I'm not sure. I mean, because I know that churches are churches and they go out and they do a thing and like everybody get on the bus, we're going to go do the thing. But it seems to me that when you're dealing with a community in crisis almost chronically, Mm -hmm. that, you know, if somebody doesn't step up and act right. Or you know whether it's for Jesus or whatever yeah. that you got to learn that shit for your own survival and also for the survival of the you know, the community. Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering. For me, it's always it's been it, it was less like oh all the black people do this right than like my mom does this right and she fit the mold in many ways and she broke it in a thousand others right. So this. I'm not sure if this is fitting or breaking. Well, I think you have an issue with with characterizing all black all the black people anyway. I mean, (laughs) Uh, maybe a mild challenge. (laughs) That that there's something that that, you know, people like Al Sharpton's not for everybody. Clearly, that is true. (laughs) That is a true statement. (laughs) But 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 to white people, they're like, well, he must be speaking for. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, he. I mean, he had that job for a long time too. Um, (laughs) Yeah, there was a rotation for a long time. It's a weird guy to get that job. Yeah, think, loud. It helps to be well, loud yeah, and well, wear I think a suit. Somehow or another, you know, Jesse Jackson sort of deteriorated, and you know, Al just stepped in. He was a little just, younger, <laughs> a little younger, a little more energy, a little more dodgy, though, really, yeah. on some level. Yeah. But all right. So then, after you you learn this you know, this idea of service, mm-hmm. I mean, that is really what propelled you. Yeah. You know, I mean, what was your first incarnation in terms of how you were going to educate yourself and in, in what you decided what was important. I mean, I know you ended up in comedy, but I mean, yeah, I see no, the kind of books you read. I mean, you wrote a book on politics, and you know, you obviously yeah, that was know, a comedic collection of essays. But yeah. still, in order to think about it, yeah, no, I mean, partly DC does it to you 
because you're overexposed to a certain type of politics, just living there. Heavily, <clears throat> excuse me, conversation in the house. Like, my mother didn't talk down to us or baby us. She's like, here's what's going on. But you were talking about issues and how yeah. they were being legislated. And, and- we, we, were, we were talking about, so we would go to African festivals or you know, Black History Specials every Martin Luther King weekend. We'd go to Malcolm X Park for things. Like, it was part of the social fabric. And one of the other things she kept me busy with was this rites of passage program called Ankobia. This mm-hmm. was a group of black folk from the 60s that in some ways never left mm-hmm. the 60s. Mm-hmm. And they're very pan-African. They spell African with a K. Yeah, sure. Uh, to sort of take that back. And they're trying to bring the values, in this case, of West Africa and kind of impose and embrace them in the community. What were those here. values? So there was a lot of, this program was about the coming of age process. Boys go through a certain track. Girls go through a certain track. There's a level of every Saturday we would meet. Saturday morning, it's this whole extra schooling. And it's physical exercise, and we're reading Marcus Garvey. And we're reading Francis Cress Welsing. And we're reading all these Pan-African black intellectuals uh, at age 12. Yeah. The books weren't written for 12-year-olds. Right, no. <laughs> we're reading this, yeah. and we have assignments, and we're taking notes, and we're yeah. being told about uh, various African religious and spiritual belief systems, and we're drumming, and we're dancing. And... That is a, there was a very explicit attempt to say you have a bigger history than the one you may be being taught. Yeah. And you have a bigger legacy to inherit if you so choose. That was motivating. But uh, is that something that you, you latched onto in, in a real sense? I mean, I, what it did for me was it balanced things. Yeah. Right. Because my mom put me in that program exactly when I started going to Sidwell, which was the opposite world. Right? That is a, a private school children of world bank officials and senators and now presidents yeah and i think she had some fear that i would get too disconnected by going into that world too disconnected from the values that she raised me with too disconnected from the community that we lived in or we're just starting to leave and went to tacoma park so this was a way and also she was very my mom i haven't even thought as much about this recently but the absence of my father was never a big deal to me. Right. Because I didn't know. Right. Kids just know. You don't know you're poor. You don't know anything. Because right. Because it's life. But to her, it was like, this little boy needs grown men in his life. Right. That I can trust. Right. And this program was a big part of that. She had a, a like a phalanx of dudes that were all trying to help me out. There was James West who taught me how to play cello and bass and how to do photography. And he was a hustler. Like he had six jobs at least. Yeah. And we would always, there was Nathan who worked in a bookstore. Right. We would get books from Nathan. Yeah. There were Pepe and Pinky, these Latino dudes who ran the bike shop. Yeah. And they told me how to ride a bike. Yeah. You know? And and then all the dudes from the program, <laughs> the Boy Scouts, like. She had outsourced your whole child, your whole, my, your fatherhood. The fatherhood was definitely outsourced. <laughs> it, was, it was like a task but, rabbit type of but situation. But she was on top of it. Yeah. Though. Yeah. So I, I know in hindsight, I had no direct, no specific father, but I had a lot of positive male role models who were doing things they had jobs and they were creative people they were artists you know and they lived right there yeah and my sister knew them and they were cool with her so that i'm sure was a big part of this whatever subtle or subconscious motivation uh, that, I, that i had but in in terms of the the sort of pan-african and and the the uh, you almost um I, that movement 
in as a Jew, you know, I know that uh, you know, I know the Old Testament. I know mm-hmm. Eastern Europe. You know, I know there was a Holocaust and stuff. And that's I know good. that's good. Yeah, I'm very aware of all, all right. this. I believe it happened. The Holocaust. Great start. Yeah, but you know what? What connection does that do for me? I mean, I don't necessarily think about it. I'm wondering, yeah. you know, in terms of, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of a religion thing, but it's also a cultural thing. And I feel I identify with the history of that. I, I find pride in that there were these generations, but you don't you know, wear it, right? You don't feel like I, you I, I don't. It. I don't right. wear it, right? You yeah. know, I don't know what it has. You know, uh, you know what? How it's defined my my sense of self. So, so here's what happens when you are and above average achieving academically person in a black community you got a lot of pressure yeah right it's on you like you're the one or the ones and so the when one who was chosen <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> and uh and so like being in the gifted and talented program like there's a lot of messaging to little black kids who do well on tests yeah and who do well in school which who show- is what are those messaging Keep doing it. Like this we, is from the community. This is from the community. This right. is whether it's scholarships telling you that you're special sure. just by signaling, like, right. hey, there's opportunity here. Whether it's we your, got one. This yeah, guy's exactly. gonna make like, it out. Don't <laughs> let this kid go. Right. Um, and it's a ton of pressure because you see what's even if you're too young to know the scope of it, you see the block around you. Now, but what about the the other side of that, yeah. which is the the more uh, you know dug in elements of the community accusing you of toming or anything else? Oh yeah, that's yeah. definitely there. I remember when I went to Sidwell, and oh, there was one year yeah of overlap where I lived on Newton Street in Columbia Heights, and I went to Sidwell, and I remember coming back when you stop well, so, going to the school yeah. that all your friends go to. Yeah. It's a huge, like, it's a dramatic, traumatic experience. And did you have to wear an outfit too? No, it was no uniform. Thank God, you no, didn't have you, to I walk just, back to the the neighborhood yeah, wearing no. your blazer. I wore the same BS. Well, I wore well maybe we should set up Sidwell. Yeah. How'd you get in, and what was what is that place? So Sidwell Friends School is a private Quaker based school. The, the religious society of friends helped found it. A lot of wooden furniture. Uh, yeah, yeah, not anymore though. They're oh. really, really fancy now. Okay, okay. Uh, I don't know how much woods. I just said the Quakers. They make. No, I, I, I nice see what tables, you're doing there. Yeah. I was trying to move just past it. Yeah, we can go, we can go right past it. <laughs> All right. So, so okay. Sid was founded in the 18, late 1800s. Yeah. And uh, Nixon sent his daughter there, long, long time ago. Bill Clinton sent Chelsea there. She yeah. was two years behind me when I was there. The Obama uh, family have sent Malia and Sasha there. And what the, the, the deal with this school, there are a lot of private schools in D.C. Yeah. And some of them are attached to religion. Some of them are more conservative. Yeah. Sidwell, because of the Quaker thing, is a more liberal school. Quakers were abolitionists. Quakers are pacifists. Quakers believe there's that of God in all of you. You don't need a preacher to tell you where to find God. And I think Nixon was a Quaker. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So when you have a school founded yeah. on those principles, community service being baked in right. is a totally natural thing. Right. Um. And so what happened was when I graduated elementary school, there was a junior high school down the block that I was supposed to go to. It was called Abraham Lincoln Junior High. It was a terrible, terrible school. Low performance, lots of violence, bad facilities. My mom was like, you're not going to that school. What generally happened for the kids who were at Bancroft with me, who were doing the gifted and talented thing, the air and space nerdy thing, you apply for special permission from the D.C. government to go to Alice Deal Junior High across town. My mother had in her mind that, well, your older sister went to some private school. She went to the Catholic school. She went to a magnet school, Benjamin mm-hmm. Banneker. She went to Duke Ellington School for the Arts. You should also have some kind of private school experience because I don't want to be playing favorites yeah. between you two. Oh, so that's how she framed it. And yeah. she's like, you're not Even. going to the school where kids get stabbed. Right. right? There was sure. also that. Yeah. So what happened is we went on this little tour. It's like a college tour for, for junior high school. 
Uh-huh. And I visited three schools. One was called Georgetown Day. One was called uh, Green Acres. Yeah. And one was called Sidwell Friends. Uh-huh. I didn't know anything about any of these schools. Yeah. Before I went there and I spent a day and I interviewed. So you take a test. You go through an admissions committee, just like college, you interview with someone, and then they say, hey, you have the right to spend like a lot of money on seventh grade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll give you that right. Yeah. So, a- and, and then we also, in parallel, uh, scholarship applications. Um, there, was, there was a group called Project Excellence that funded programs like this. So your this. mom was on the post all this shit. Yeah. I mean, she was, she and was then, not going to let you... No, she was like, there was no way. Yeah. There was no way that we were going to be failing <laughs> at, at things. Yeah. Where there was no, in fact, there was no way we were going to be average. Yeah, yeah. Like just not getting in trouble yeah, yeah. and doing okay yeah. wasn't enough. Yeah, <laughs> right. My sister's, uh, like I said, she's nine years ahead of me. We used to trade notes later in life. Yeah. Because that's a big distance. And so yeah. you, you lose some of the, sure. the knowledge. Our mother would try the same tricks on us. And my sister didn't always like loop me into this. Stuff. Yeah. And part of what happened is we were good kids. Like, I'm, we weren't out on the block. Right. You know, we weren't slinging, whatever, yeah. trying to sell trees. And uh, you get into whatever petty trouble, but there's no criminal stuff. My mother, it didn't matter to her. Whenever we got into any kind of trouble, she would be so disappointed. She would take it as a sign of disrespect. Yeah. And we're both like, yo, we're good kids. You're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Look at where we live. Do you know what Renee's up to? Do you know what James is up to? Do you know what Deshaun is up to? Like, yeah. And for her, it didn't matter. So there wasn't- a, <laughs> There was a, no allowance. There was no reprimanding, for, though? Just ma- massive disappointment? No, there was, there was reprimanding. There was spanking. There was, right. all, there was punishment. But I think what happened is there was no curve. Yeah. Right? She had an absolute idea right, 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 of right. what we were supposed to be doing, what we were capable right. of. Right. A little trouble is the same as and a lot of And it didn't matter what the other kids were up to. Right, right. right? I am your- parent and guardian i set the rules i set the bar so that was also motivating <laughs> right because you knew that what your friends might get away with that's not gonna fly with mom right yeah so and she was it so you get you so, got so in on sidwell got, got into sidwell chose that one um the green acre school was, was a little too weird they had a basketball game that i attended when i visited they lost 50 to 2 yeah i felt like i couldn't that was bad for that me. That was just too much to live. It really, it was like, okay, I'm already leaving my community. Like, I can't wear that too. Come on, now. let me at least stay in the DC yeah. city uh, boundaries. Yeah. So, and then that that first year, when you get yanked out of that community, you're adjusting on both sides because you're not you you still live in the same house, but you don't have the same social life as all the friends that live around you. Right. You're taking different buses. Yeah. Leaving way earlier, coming back way later because there's just so much more to do right at a private school they have fields and yeah. labs and yeah. teachers yeah uh and it's amazing and books to actually read. a real school yeah exactly it's like <laughs> what school should be yeah. so we're doing school yeah yeah and uh and then on the sidwell side i'm new to that world yeah and there are kids who've been there their whole lives and they've got more money their parents have these jobs that i don't know anything about they got both parents they've got cars like um and the, the demands are much higher and this is where those extra programs helped out. Right. Because like, okay, I'm, if I didn't have the higher achievement program, I couldn't have made it at Sidwell. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, maybe mentally I was capable of it, but I right. don't think I just would have had to practice. And what was, what did you feel the, that you had to do to prove yourself there? I mean, like, what was the biggest <laughs> obstacle? So the, in the first year, the biggest obstacle was cultural. I remember there were these two, there were these twins, white dudes, blonde hair, blue eyes, just like Aryan dudes. Yeah. They weren't, Aaron dudes, but they were like this model. Right, right that, sure, that, sure. In some ways, I had been trained to be like, that's the devil right there. Yeah, yeah. Watch out. Yeah. And they were taunting me for the way I spoke. Because I spoke 
you know, more colloquially. I, I asked people questions. I had a little ebonic situation going on. And I knew, like, my mother taught us how to speak appropriately. But when yeah. casually, yeah. what's the point of overdoing it? Yeah, right. I'm not on a job interview. I'm 12. Right. And these kids, like, oh, you're going to ask me? You're going to break out your axe and ask me a question? And everybody was laughing. We were sitting on a field right on Wisconsin Avenue. We're under a tree. Yeah. God, I haven't even thought about the specifics of this day in so long. And the sh- the the being on stage like that being and called being shamed out. Yeah. like that right terrible feeling yeah yeah and got think on your feet yeah so yeah. I walked over and I just kicked him <laughs> no joke then. no no there was no wit <laughs> there was the foot in his ass <laughs> that, that took a while yeah wait. and uh, and and we, I kicked him with all my might uh huh and I was a pretty good kicker he used to play yeah. soccer yeah so I, he was a soccer ball and that you know the teachers didn't appreciate that I was brought in for a talking to and. But did it? Did what? Did it have the sort of jail yard effect? Of yeah, no, like they never, right? <laughs> ever taunted me again. And yeah. you know, I remember the other. What else was? I mean, it was also a lot of transitions, like girls, yeah, and acne, yeah. All those things are happening at the same time too. So uh-huh. I'm not sure. It's like, is this because it's a new school? It's because my body's fucking going haywire here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it was because I like like booty now. Like, yeah. what's going on uh, in my life and in my brain? And that so that first year was like making new friends, figuring out where I where I fit in this school. Was this the first time you really had to deal with this many white people at once? Oh, abs- I've never seen so many white people. <laughs> I really physically hadn't seen. I'd never been that close. See, that's to that a, many that, white that, I mean, I don't think that's something any white person can really understand. <laughs> yeah. You know, because yeah. like you know, for for your whole life, you're brought up with the idea that you know this is white people's country, right? White people's world. Yeah. They're the enemy most of the time. You know, when when white people end up in black situations, you know, either they're they're trying to to sort of get over, or they're just nervous. Yeah. But yeah. you know, here you are. It must be like enemy camp on some level. It, it, it was weird because um, I mean, my mom's workplace. She worked in a government office, but even then, ton of black people. I mean, yeah, DC is yeah. a black city, and yeah. it was even blacker back in yeah 1989 and 90 right. so that was culture shock uh just the the race of the neighborhood the school was in like these are all everything was new right. everything it yeah. was a little scary but i i would say that seventh grade year was the adjustment year right and then uh i, I hit my stride yeah and i really and i was a friendly dude it's not like i had a lot of aggression ex- right i mean if you're gonna like taunt me and like you were going to stand off to, yeah. Yeah, you, I didn't have you that kind of stuff to prove. Fight, right, yeah, right, right, I wasn't right. on some, some valiant You mission. weren't quoting uh, Pan-African literature on well, that. <laughs> well, on, actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I was. And so that and that was the, um, that is the, the side effect. Yeah. Well, not even the side effect. It's the direct result of a mother sending her little black boy to like an elite private school and Afrocentric camp mm-hmm. every Saturday. Yeah. Those wires get crossed, right? And but so you kind of utilize it. For yeah, your no, but it, it made me more unique. Yeah, because what we had as a part of the the Ankabia program, it was like a fraternity. You yeah. had to do certain things. Yeah. We had to wear right an African medallion sure. all the time. The uh, the country of Africa, the country of the Africa, colors. the red, black, and green. Sure, that was really yeah. so. We had to wear that every day, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> that I had to explain that. We're like, why? What's up with the Africa? But you didn't take it that. off. No, of course not. I yeah. wore and and it's not the, because of the house. I was, there was no shame around it. It's right like, now, you're about to learn some stuff. People. Yeah, yeah. Here's what's up. <laughs> <laughs> How'd they take to it? They, I think they admired it. Yeah. Right. Because it was it just made me different. Yeah, and that's yeah, yeah. it's one of these little like in a school like kids can be horrible. Yeah. 
But if you're different enough, yeah, it's actually kind of cool. Yeah, if it's not different enough to where they can mock you, but it's different enough to where they're like, wow. Oh, there's some respect there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then the other thing that was early on, there were these Black History Month music review showcases that happened every year at Sidwell. There's a guy who ran the music society called Ricky Payton, Mm -hmm. dope composer. He like worked with everybody, essentially. And he would orchestrate this, and then some kids' parents who worked at Howard University would write it, and there were auditions for this play slash musical slash educational review. And one of my friends, black friends, Marcus, he he had been my buddy. He was yeah. like assigned to me when I was like, you take care of this little new black boy. You've been here your whole life. Show him the ropes. Yeah. So he said, yo, we should go audition for this thing. I was like, okay, yeah. I'm going to do what you say. Mm-hmm. And I got the chance to sing and like perform. And the room was like, yo, who is this kid? Yeah. And I was like, yo, what just came out of my mouth? Like, <laughs> I didn't so that was that also helped a lot. It gave me another place. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I can perform. Yeah. I can dance. I can sing. I can remember lines really well. I can do the stage thing and like have a presence. Yo. So even so, the confidence that I lacked with like girls in an interpersonal thing was totally there on stage, and that helped. I said, well, a lot because with every the, year with the girls, not with the girls. There were no. There were no girls. No girls. There were no girls. Yeah. There were girls that I wanted to be my girl, but there were no girls. Yeah. Um, I, and so I, I folk, I did the books thing. I did the arts thing. I did track and field. I was always doing a sport and I had a job. <laughs> I worked, you know, what were you working at? I, I worked uh, at the Washington post in the copy aid stations, like an internal mail room. Mm-hmm. You deliver memos, you answer the phones. Mm-hmm. A lot of faxing was going on back then. So sure. like cutting faxes and running yeah, around yeah, the yeah. building. I had that job for several Was years. that because you had an interest in the journalism? Or? Yeah. Now well, let's talk about this issue because it sort of fascinates yeah. me about, uh, like I my I worked with a, a black dude on the air for a year and a half, mm-hmm. and you know he was uh, you know a, a, a real political guy, but like I was always sort of like the the whole idea of of you of getting flack from your own yeah for 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 doing for, for excelling yeah for achieving yeah. that that to me just it sort of blows my mind. I mean I get it intellectually, but yeah. it's a real thing. Yeah, um, when I that overlapping year when I lived yeah. in my old neighborhood and went to Sidwell, I remember getting off the bus. And I ran into a friend, uh-huh. and he was like, "Oh, you go to that white school now? Uh-huh. You're gonna get all white now?" Uh-huh. And it was, it wasn't the harsh like you've totally sold out, but there was the expectation like he had already planned for it. Yeah, it's like people say like the the market, like the price has been built in. Like he was like, "Oh, I'm gonna expect Veritune to become this thing." And after that, there's occasional commentary and heckling, right, from people, but. I I did not have the worst of it, partly because we moved, and so the kids and I spent all my time at school. I would get to school at like seven thirty in the morning, and I wouldn't leave till seven or seven thirty in the evening because I was doing extracurricular stuff. Mm-hmm. And I would go straight home, homework, watch the news, go to bed. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a ton of opportunity to be called out as an Oreo or a sellout yeah. or talking white. Yeah, when you're around a whole bunch of people who are in that world, right. So occasionally you might come across another community. Um, there was a there was a time when kids that I grew up with got into a beef with one of the kids I went to school with at Sidwell. All black, everybody was black. Yeah, so it was a private school black kid gets into some beef with public school black kids, and I don't know what he did. I don't know what he said. I don't know if he just looked at somebody wrong or disrespected somebody's girl. But there are like between ten and twenty kids on campus looking for this dude. Yeah. And they're running around, where is he? Where is he? Boom. And 
that's a that's a frightening situation. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah, that's not yeah. ideal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this kid's in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and they roll up on me, and I'm like, oh, now am I about to be the target yeah. of their rage? And this magic moment happens. One of them, he's like, you're Baratunde. All right, yo, he's cool. Where's that other bastard? Right? Like, and they were just, it was like, it was like, and, 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 I don't know, like Lord of the Rings when the wraiths like are well, looking around and they're like, yeah. oh, you're good. Yeah. And they move on to yeah. another target. Well, I mean, the real, <laughs> the real test of self there is like, let me help you find him. You're like, if you, <laughs> that I didn't do. Good. That I did not. I'm not going to no, throw him under the bus. That would have been a bad end for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, so yeah, so being called out as being white or selling out or what have you, it's a part of the experience of going to the type of school I went to and of having this like parent that I had and this achievement mentality, but it was never an overwhelming enough thing that it like, Oh, this kills me. I, what, what, what's happening inside of me? I didn't right. really affect, but it didn't make me stop what I was doing. But as somebody who grew up in that and somebody who's put some thought into yeah. it and written a, a, a book though, a, a humorous book on, on how to be black. I mean, how, how much of that pull is still dangerous? I, I think it's very dangerous. I think it's very dangerous. The The problem, when you make it pop culturally cool to not do shit. Right. Or to do terrible shit. Yeah. <laughs> to, to destroy yourself. Right. That's, that's bad. Right. And shaming achievement, it can only be bad. Right. There, I mean, there's always going to be some taunt. I mean, I think there's some... There's some inescapability of this across all kids, mm-hmm. right? Nerdy kids are going to get it. Sure. Right? Yeah. And then it's just even, That's fine. even like, me too. Like, jocks and nerds and, and there's the AV hip, kids and, and, and there's hip the, kids. Yeah, yeah. So those circles are okay. But when you're playing with the fire that is the situation in the black community, yeah. it's extra dangerous because uh, it's not just that you're going to be not doing as well as you could. It's that you could be sucked into a world of hurt that's going to set you back for the rest of your life right if you get into that criminal justice system you're tagged you're done and you could be doing it just out of peer pressure or or to prove something and when you're at the age you know we're all like social beings we're all in a pack mentality but teenage boys yeah it's you're playing with uh, some real volatile stuff there and like a sense of belonging and being part of a tribe or a club or a gang or a crew you will you know that survival is much more important than some long-term ideal that you can't see when you're 14. Yeah, and I guess it's so. a conversation that you know is discussed by you know intellectuals, and, and and it's obviously ongoing, and it's obviously something that all teenage kids deal mm-hmm. with. But it just seems that the schism around that it's heightened. Yeah, you know? because there there there's such a you know the struggle. You know, the, the, there is a sort of built-in. Like, like I, you know, I don't, I don't, we don't necessarily need to talk about, you know, broad, you know, African American issues just because you're here. But, I, but, I, but there, it just seems that, that there is a built in segregation to the idea of the black community intentionally. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and, and maybe I'm speculating, but it seems that with that mindset, that there is no the, the the traction of the idea of not seeing color lines or 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 having you know fully integrated society is not necessarily trusted on either side. No, that's and and there is one. I mean the the reality of how integrated our society is 
Yeah. Is, is much lower than we like to talk about. Yeah. We're actually not very interested. No, I, I never right. see it. Like, you know, I go to, like, especially at Boston. Yeah. I mean, you oh, spend. Well, Boston. I spent 12 years in no, Boston. No, but, right. Yeah. You know, like, I, I went to school there. Yeah. And, I, and, and I've never been in a more segregated uh, city. I yeah. mean, it's to the point where you're in Boston for four years doing college. And you're like, where are they? Yeah. I mean, where Though are I, they? And as a black person, I felt that. It's scary, and dude. And then one day, you stay on the orange line too long. You're like, I found them! <laughs> My people! <laughs> Mattapan! Yeah. West Roxbury! JP! Yeah. Good to meet you. Yeah. Uh, but you gotta go. You gotta hunt for it. It's that, wild, so, though. Boston's such a weird, weird, weird city. Someone who, who grew up in D.C. with a lot of black people, yeah. like black people in power, yeah. politically, yeah. Boston made no sense to me. It was. It's I was bizarre. like, wait, and, and you have one black city council member for, and it, like, <laughs> for Mattapan? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's but it's considered a progressive city. Well, yeah, and, and, and so are progressive in in certain ways, right? Liberalism has a lot of flavors in America. Yeah, liberalism is really good like, about yeah, yourself. Yeah, they have Cambridge. That's, yeah. it's over there. Yeah, the people you want to talk and, to, and, and it can take the form of like justice for people overseas mm -hmm. and animals. And I read these books and my, and I listen to these radio stations. But it doesn't mean you socialize. That's, well, that's interesting. Across that, lines, that 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 you know, boutique liberalism yeah. is really what it is because you know you you're still speaking to you know and having done you know liberal talk radio, you're yeah. dealing with moneyed interests who are trying to sort of placate their guilt by being involved, you know, sometimes more and sometimes less uh, in certain causes. Yeah. But the the broad scope of it, in my mind, is like, you know, if you're a liberal, there's only one question you have to answer is, do you give a shit about poor people in any real way? Yeah. And, you know, usually the answer is like, why well, the animals are, you know, like <laughs> it does, it's not, it's not what it's about. Yeah. It, it, the fragmentation of that thing and the, the idea that, you know, liberals are always like, why are the right? Why do they have so much cultural momentum? Because they're all on the same page. Yeah. It's not a good page, but, but it's they're, a consistent page. Right? They're so shamelessly often. self. Uh, <laughs> they're shamelessly careerist. They're shamelessly narrow-minded, and they're they're shamelessly, uh, you know, about the movement of capital. I I think, however, the I, I this overstated the unity of the right. Yeah. Like, oh, they're all on message on the same page. They're actually not on the same page. No, no. Right. I, I mean, the, the the organization of the right and, and, okay. and their ability to message properly to people that you know, are angry enough to vote against their self-interest economically okay. the and lead them. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I get it. I mean, right. I'm talking about the people in charge. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But I just found that, you know, with liberalism, there's a very weird sort of thing. Because, like, I started to ask myself, well, you know, how many rich liberals, you know, they don't want to pay their taxes either. Yeah. Now, nobody wants to pay their taxes. So, I mean, you know, how are they still... You know, connecting themselves to the to the liberal idea if they're still hiding money and not you know doing their civic duty or doing anything. Single source coffee. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's what I'm saying. The tie that binds. It's a, it's man. a boutique, it's a, a boutique write off. Yeah. So, what drove you to write the to write the book? The mm. the, you know, the I mean, that was your biggest seller, right? Yeah, yeah. The the book I did before that, the books I did before that were all self published. Uh -huh. So this is the first book with a publisher not named Baratunde Thurston. Right. And that was a big deal. What drove me to write it was an opportunity that presented itself. And you wrote this. This was recently, but let's uh, yeah. uh, maybe Go before ahead. we get to that. No so you ended up at Harvard. I did. So it all paid off. Yeah, I applied, got in. I didn't just show up like a right. No, yeah, you didn't. Like I thing. think I deserve this. Look at me. <laughs> and <laughs> I didn't. I, honestly, it was my understanding that you allow a few of us in every year. <laughs> I didn't want to go. Yeah, I didn't want to go. The Sidwell experience was good. I learned yeah. a ton of things. I also learned it's exhausting being my type of person in that type of situation a, a right. student who's a student of color who's obsessive who <laughs> is is in this dominant environment 
Uh-huh. This, this, you're constantly at doing some kind of battle. Everything's a battle because you're someone's challenging rhetorically, just out loud, like you're right to be there. Oh, you didn't, you didn't qualify to be here. Someone's asking. Someone wants to touch your hair. Someone wants you to explain all your people. The, the assumption wants, that you're on some sort of free ride. Yeah, like there's all there's. It's the extra. It's like overhead. Yeah, right. It's this extra burden that like any like kid of color, a poor kid, in an elite private institution, it's the same routine. Like everyone, everyone who's lived that life recognizes what I'm talking about. Because it's like, all oh, right, I have to. You're a sideshow. You're a sideshow. You're you're a novelty. Yeah, but there's also that's a better word. You are um, you're still suspect in, in some way. Yeah, right? because look at the rest of you. Yeah, and and that's <laughs> it's it's a it's so you just have to, a lot more explaining to do. Yeah, yeah, uh, or, which is draining. Yeah, so it's emotionally it's extracurricular exhausting. defensiveness that you don't right. Need. It's an extra class hours right. that are not accounted for. Right, and then for college. Yeah, when you're like, oh, am I going to re up for this? Yeah. And go to New England? I don't what is this New England? Yeah, yeah. I mm-hmm. had visions of mm-hmm. Massachusetts with like needles on the shore. Yeah. And yeah. like dead whales rolling up and just like I really? had racists yeah. everywhere. Yeah, well that might be true. And uh yeah, there were there had been some I think I saw something in the news about some right, biomedical waste sure, and sure, it just yeah. locked in my head like all the beaches it wasn't the mayflower it wasn't no no it know, was the like first one the first biomedical colony. disease yeah. needles yeah yeah, yeah. not like, the state house and the, yeah. <laughs> no it was yeah. nothing it wasn't the beautiful trees turning yeah, yeah yeah yeah. it was like a bunch of white people yeah. a bunch of races it was cold yeah and there were needles on the beaches yeah why would i want to do that <laughs> so i remember i wanted i was visited morehouse i was like oh, maybe i'll go to go down here uh howard and other black schools and what happened is i had a friend who another black kid who was two years ahead of me, he went to Harvard. He said, I think you should check it out. Yeah. And only because it was him. Yeah. And I, we trusted each other deeply. Yeah. I was like, okay. Yeah. And so when we did the college tour, we hit New England and, and visited Harvard and I actually loved it. Yeah. I was like, I Pretty. think I could do this. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. You go in that gate and you're in yeah. your quad. And, it does and then it. And what I basically found was I got a lot of the boot camp, a lot of that, like my first tour was Sidwell. Yeah. And in Harvard, I could focus on some other things a little bit. I wasn't I knew who I was. Yeah. I didn't I wasn't threatened by people feeling threatened by me. Yeah. Uh or feeling like I didn't belong there. Was there so, but there must have been less of that. Um I don't know if there was less. Yeah. Because it's in some ways it's the same type of people. It's a more diverse environment politically. Yeah. But it's still pretty liberal. Mm-hmm. Right? Not just the state, but the student body. There's more people. You have top people from all kinds of schools, which creates its own little weird environment. And also from other countries. You have yeah, a, you you know, more international. aristocracy of, of many great nations. All kinds. Yeah. That have, have delivered their scions to- <laughs> Their first and yeah, second yeah, and third yeah, boards. Yeah, because someone's got to run the country. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So you train them here and they yeah. know how to bankrupt back home. That's right. <laughs> exactly. It's <laughs> the way the world works. It's all been planned. Yeah, all has. this has happened before. That all actually has again. been planned, there I think. You go. Um, yeah, so so it was easier at Harvard, yeah, than the Sidwell thing. I was also older, mm-hmm. right, and so maybe more stable emotionally. And what did you study over there? Philosophy, really, really. Okay, <laughs> is that all right? Yeah, it's like I'm I'm impressed because I have a lot of books I don't understand, and right. uh, maybe we can run through them. What'd you focus on? Like, who was who was your guy? What'd you write your papers on? I ended up in a lot of metaphysics with a guy named Derek Parsons. Uh huh. I did a whole tutorial on Kant's critique of pure reason, mm-hmm. which is the, maybe the hardest thing I've ever read. 
just trying to get through all that. There's a whole language to it. But what, what yeah. compelled you in that direction as opposed mm. to English or, or anything else? Because philosophy, is a, it's a bitch. Yeah, well, I, I showed up wanting, I was always a math and science kid. I'm at the Air and Space Club. Okay. I wanted to do computer science. Yeah. I was big on internet things yeah. before getting to college. Uh, or Were you to, there with Zuckerberg? No, he's younger. Uh-huh. He's, I think he's five years behind. Uh, so he missed out on that. Well, he missed out on me, too. Yeah, so okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I thought computer science and math. Yeah. Those were going to be my majors. Yeah. Engineering, mm-hmm. all that stuff. A high school teacher said, you should take a philosophy class when you get there. Like, what, what, my senior year. So, I, I what high school, what, Who was this high school teacher? Her name was Erica Berry. Yeah. She was my... She actually was a Spanish teacher for a very long time. Yeah. Who became an English teacher. Yeah. So I had her for English. Right. And she was a great English teacher. I think yeah. she might have been a better English teacher than a Spanish teacher. Yeah. Although I never had her for Spanish. I'm just kind of making that up. So you trusted her. I trusted her. Mm. And I went through the course catalog. I saw Intro to Philosophy. Yeah. Philosophy 3 taught by this dude, Anthony Appiah. Yeah. Who's an African dude. Yeah. And so my Intro to Philosophy was this like African-born scholar, Anthony Appiah, Ghanaian specifically. Yeah. And I loved it. Yeah. And I loved it more than computer science. What about it? I liked the arguing. I liked the digging. I liked, a lot of it was in groups. Yeah. You know, you're in a group with other people Uh because it's too much to figure out all by yourself. Uh Uh-huh. And so you're like, well, I think it's this and I think it's that and I think it's this. And you hash it out. I loved that. Yeah. And I loved, there was a lot of metaphor Uh in, you know, the philosophy that was focused on, that I focused on at Harvard was analytic philosophy. It's very... Logic driven. It's very like you can decompose the so, argument to little pieces. So that satisfied the math brain. Exactly. And yeah. the computer brain. Right. As it wasn't the existential or continental right. philosophy with the Kierkegaards and the Nietzsche's. I didn't do much of that. Right. Uh, I did almost none of that. That's a whole wing of philosophy that I'm pretty blind to. That, that was more poetic. Yeah. So you were into the uh, sort of classic logic. Let's break this down and like if if there's a brain in a vat and what what happens if or is that right. a person if you get dissolved through a teleportation is that you on the other side or have you been killed and reborn like right. does it matter yeah so I love that stuff yeah I can I can go there yeah and that was a ton of fun I didn't do a thesis though and I didn't go to grad school right because I didn't ultimately care that much about these hypothetical problems right. And I got I got to be grounded still. I'm still like but I'm it, largely but nonfiction. It, but it, it, it somehow, you know, gave your brain some structure that yeah. you dug and gave you a little space. But and it was still with words. That right. was the other thing. I I didn't know that I liked words. Yeah. Really until the high school newspaper. Yeah. And then college, I was like, I love words. Yeah. I had no idea. I thought I loved numbers only. Yeah. Numbers and like letters between numbers. Right. In some complex math formula, I got to college, and I was a good writer. According to the school, yeah, and the I was like, oh, it's a good school, yeah, and that's <laughs> why I did the newspaper. And I was like, oh, I wrote for the newspaper, and I'm writing these weird philosophy papers. I did stuff on the theater stuff, and I wrote co- a comedy newsletter. I started writing a satirical comedy newsletter my freshman year of college, playing with words. That was amazing, and it took a couple of hoops for me to finally figure that out. Yeah, philosophy was a big part of that because I could paint with these words, and I could attack with words, and I could sort of discover and i didn't know you could do that for me words was like boring english papers and history papers where you're basically retelling events or trying to ruin good literature by over once you strip down grammar into equations (laughs) right well yeah and it was even it wasn't for me it was less about grammar to equations and more of how can i shift sideways to understand what's really being said here Uh can i substitute in 
something I do understand for something I don't. Uh-huh. And write it in those terms. Right. And so I threw a lot I threw a lot of jokes in my philosophy paper. Yeah. Cuz it just made it easier for me to understand. Well, that's what I jokes made, are for. Yeah, I made references to things that were native to me and I didn't know, I guess before that I didn't really know you could do that. Uh-huh. And not that I didn't have permission to, I just hadn't figured it out or I hadn't seen, seen you it. You hadn't noticed it. Yeah. You hadn't done the right reading. So that's so the philosophy really showed all all that. And it was like I just I just liked arguing too. Yeah, well, it's inter- <laughs> well, I mean that sort of sets the brain up for a lot of stuff. I mean yeah. that's usually you know you're either going to go into philosophy, which means you're going to teach, right, or you're going to you know go on to 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 utilize that framework for law or for whatever, yeah. for medical ethics, whatever the hell you're going to get into. And it's all the the ability if you can get to the heart of what someone like Kant is trying to say, yeah, and feel like you really grasp it, you can parse anything. Yeah, did you right. get, did you get there? I, my memory is fuzzy. Yeah, on that <laughs> there might have been a moment. I, there, there might have been a moment <laughs> as I was walking into a building and I looked up and I saw this bird. Yeah, I was like, I get it. Oh, it was right there. Flew away with the bird. A brief moment of insight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But sometimes, I mean, shoot, some people go their whole lives and don't even have that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, that's amazing that you were able to parse it. So, so you realize that you could use this to cut. You know, like with your wit yeah. and with the idea of, of being able to sort of break things apart, that you were able to do what a satirist is supposed to do. Bam. Got it. And philosophy was the training. Right. Yeah. To sort of like get to the core of it. Yep. And then once you get to the core of it, if you wanna if you wanna shit on it yep. or you wanna elevate it, yep. you've got the you've got the structure. There you go. Okay. That's very true. So so yes. Okay. I, I wrote the satire newsletter, I wrote a, a humor column uh-huh. uh in the newspaper while I was there. It was good. Did you do any lampoon stuff or no? No, I didn't, and it was that was a that was an interesting choice because when I showed up at college, I didn't know that I cared about comedy. Right. I was a very politically active kid. I knew I liked journalism. Yeah. Um, my older sister was a journalist. You want truth and justice? Yeah, I was. I was a little righteous. Act. Yeah. I was actually a very serious kid. Yeah. You know, and I was Sid was a lot of protests and stuff yeah. going on too. So the the humor. For me, came out of the news first. I was paying all this attention to the news, and I, I wanted to like help inform my classmates through this newsletter in a fun way. Yeah. So there, there was a translation, right, of real information. That's where my comedy started, and by that point, there was a timing when you like try to do the lampoon. Usually, when, right when you show up. Yeah. And I had chosen the newspaper, which is the Crimson. They're mortal enemies. Right. And they play pranks on each other and steal each other's stuff, and you just don't. It's like a line you don't cross, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's like. Well, you I think you're 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 attacking something. You, you know, I mean that there's a broader type of satire. Yeah. I mean to do to do sort of cutting witty journalism. You know, in the in you know, like along the lines of you know Mencken or Hunter S. Thompson or or anybody who's still considered a journalist but pushes the envelope yeah. on it. Uh, it's different, I think, a little bit than than broad satire. Yeah. And I think that, like, from what little I know about the Lampoon, you know, they may hit some notes, you know, but, you know, P.J. O'Rourke's another example, although mm-hmm. he ended up sort of on the wrong side of things. But I, I but but I could see how the tradition didn't appeal to you. I mean, journalism is more well, When it was also, I mean, the, the basic truth of it is they weren't very funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was just, I mean, the, everything goes through phases. I'm yeah. not saying the Lampoon itself isn't a funny place. I'm saying when we were there. It was pretty understood amongst at least my group of friends. This isn't that fun, right? But also, I it doesn't seem like you wanted to get into show business necessarily. That was yeah. That definitely wasn't my ideas about what I was going to do after school. Was journalism, right? Was something 
in technology yeah um or teaching yeah right so and i had a journalism summer internship because right, it line. seems like the lampoon cats i mean if there is they a harvard club out write, here right yeah, yeah write they, scripts right you get that it. that whole future didn't occur to me till much later right and and i'm sort of in that zone now right but when i was 18 that was not the future i saw for myself oh yeah well yeah. so you're in that zone now what have you given up <laughs> no no <I'm... laughs> what happened to you man i uh, <laughs> i lost something yeah i got it sounds like yeah. it. yeah yeah california will do that to a man <laughs> i don't even live here yeah well see you're out here for a couple of days everything's yeah. gone soft yeah too many burritos <laughs> yeah so what the so all right so what informed this book yeah you know what i mean because this seems to be sort of you know the, the this, this was what you were working towards on some level in many ways it was i mean it's like it's like i've been training for this moment yeah and then all that training has but what led was to, what, what, what 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 was the moment that sent you over the edge and you're gonna <laughs> outside of a lifetime of whatever your lifetime is yeah. that you thought this would be the angle because it, it's a it's a one it's a one line pitch on this right yeah so what was that so that was it was about the timing more than anything yeah i had done i had worked in the corporate world and done things there uh, as what I, I was a, a, a consultant and analyst I yeah. did forecasting of business revenues I thought of products that communications companies yeah. could do yeah. it's fed my tech logic entrepreneurial brain and I left that for comedy and for justice doing stand up doing stand up and, and also blog, political blogging and what made you what inspired you to do comedy necessarily I mean what yeah. well I, I knew that I was funny in one format right like email hilarious yeah. email newsletter <laughs> yeah. I could kill it on email yeah um, and you never hear a boo. Yeah. Right? yeah. So that was great. And I knew I liked the stage because yeah. I had been doing shows, yeah. you know, even through college and musicals and things. But it was a friend, Derek Ashong is his name. He's a cool dude out there doing all kinds of fun stuff. He said, I'm going to do an open mic yeah. at a comedy club in Boston. Yeah. And he never did it. Yeah. But I, he said it and it put this weird thing in my head. Yeah. And I had loved comedy and I loved the writing and I, my now ex-wife, then girlfriend, who was a musician yeah. and doing her thing. She was out in Harvard Square playing the guitar and doing the Tracy Chapman style yeah, thing. Sure. She never knew me in college. I yeah. met her right after I graduated. So she knew this guy who worked in a corporate world. Yeah. But clearly had some other stuff going on and I was pitching her jokes and like, look at our work this last year. Yeah, I wrote yeah. this two years ago. I'm like, this is my little peacock dance. I'm flashing my feathers. Yeah, she was your audience. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, Well, why aren't you doing this anymore? Yeah. And in many more words, um, and more cutting than that, but also more loving than that. Yeah. And you need them sometimes to. It, it changed the direction of my life. We had there was one phone call in December two thousand one. Nine eleven was very recent and obviously in everybody's head. And she had asked me the question she asked was, "Do you like performing more, performing more, or writing more?" Yeah. And I went through this whole thing. Well, on the one hand, on the other hand, blah. blah and she said, "Well, you're not doing either." <laughs> You sell out. Why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I had a, I had a great excuse. I was like, money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why I need yeah. to make it. Yeah. So I can pay these loans on all this great education. Yeah. And once I get free of all that and become financially independent, I will have the luxury of pursuing my right. art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And she called bullshit. Yeah. And she, she said- There's No end to that one. Either you will keep redefining financial- freedom mm -hmm. and get stuck there mm -hmm. wanting bigger things and mm -hmm. more of them yeah and you won't come back or you will come back and you'll suck yeah because it'll be too long that's right you wouldn't have written in what five there. years 10 years 15 years take the so hit. just do it yeah 
So I started writing again every week. I brought back that newsletter. I took a stand-up comedy class in Boston. With who? Steve Kalishman. I don't know. He, uh, he teaches in the Boston Center for Adult Education. Okay. He writes. Last time he wrote for Men's Health, he had a column there. All right. And I came to New York every Tuesday. I lived in Boston. I commuted to New York every Tuesday for a comedy writing workshop with these dudes, John Abood and Michael Colton. And they had a business called Modern Humorist. Everything but get on stage. No, no. So this was, uh, yeah. Well, the getting on stage was at the end of the comedy thing. Sure, sure. So all the all that fed. But you needed to you needed to learn. You, yeah. You, well, I wanted you had a brain like basically that. all these things were. You couldn't just watch, you know, a, a comedy. I didn't know that that was even possible to just go to a club and be like, "Hey, put me like." Oh, okay. It's not like I had. Who, a who were the comics up. that moved you? I mean, did you have guys? Yeah, or? I mean, I grew up watching a ton of. Uh, Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy and some Red Fox and Whoop, a lot of Whoopi Goldberg uh-huh. and uh, a lot of Garrison Keillor uh-huh. actually was a huge influence. Audio, we did a lot of audio stuff like road trips uh-huh. and listening to tape. Your mom was to NPR. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and all kind and like old radio dramas sure, and old radio sure. comedies and a lot of British TV shows, British sitcoms mm-hmm. on PBS. So you had a head full of it. You just didn't know how to get up on stage. Yeah. yeah. Not as me. Yeah. I knew how to get up on stage. Right. From a performing Singing or doing it. But not being Baratunde saying, here's what I think. Yeah. So how was that first time? Oh, the first time was perfect. Yeah. (laughs) The first time, it was I I cheated the class. Like, we were supposed to all do our first performance at the end of the class at the comedy studio in front of our friends and family and whoever happened to show Mm -hmm. up that night and Mm -hmm. didn't know Mm -hmm. it was newbie night. Yeah. Right. right. But mostly it was a friendly crowd. Yeah. I was like, I'm not going to make that be my first show. I'm going to... Get one in before then. Yeah. So I went to an open mic at a Chinese food restaurant over by Fenway Park. It was actually in a Howard Johnson. Yeah. A China, it was like all the comedy venue cliches in one place. Yeah. Chinese food restaurant inside of Howard Johnson by a ballpark. Yeah. And I went up there and I did four or five minutes and I killed. Yeah. I was like, I'm a god. Yeah. I am so good at this. Yeah, yeah. And Easy. Then, <laughs> and then we had to do a practice set in the class uh, and I bombed. Yeah. And I was, what, what was the difference? I, I was overconfident. I got lucky. I yeah. was raw instinct. Yeah. No technique. Right. 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 Just, oh, just animus just yeah, coming yeah, out. Yeah. And a lot of natural stage ability was there. Yeah. But how to present it in my voice and what was that voice? Right. Who knew? Yeah. So the show that we did, the big show that we did is our graduation show. I did well. Yeah. And Rick Jenkins and I talked after. He said, hey, you did pretty well. You want to do that again sometime? I was like, yeah, I'd love to do that again. So he gave me a date, I don't know, two months out. Oh, God, I remember that. So I, would, I was prepping and prepping and prepping. For and 10, I did for five minutes. Yeah, for yeah, five minutes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I was working out in, in any other place I could, but mostly like, I want to go back to the comedy studio and do my thing. Yeah. So that's where the, the stand-up started. Yeah. It started because I was like, I have the page and the humor and the satire stuff there. I have the stage persona, but it's just, and character mostly. Right. Can I fuse them? Mm-hmm. And that class in the studio kind of gave me a shot. And the the New York thing, what the structure of that class was really cool. It was a workshop. So every week they were trying to expose you like, oh, there's different ways to do this comedy thing. It was their way of making money, honestly. They were like charge people to do this comedy workshop. But I still got a ton out of it because they brought in the editor of The Onion at the time was Carol Kolb. And she talked about what The Onion was and how it worked. And then they brought in Patrick Borelli to talk about stand-up comedy. They brought in Michael Schur, who was running Weekend Update at SNL at the time. 
they brought in every week somebody representing some different flavor. Yeah, of like here are the worlds that are available to you as a comic. Well, that's important, you know, yeah, because like that, when when kids ask me now, you know, about stand up, I'm like, just don't put all your eggs in that basket. Yeah. There's five guys that are going to make a good living at that. Yeah. any given time period. I mean, if you learn how to write jokes and you learn how to, I mean, there's there's a lot available here. Exactly. Yeah. So I got before it wasn't like I learned that ten years into stand up. Yeah, I learned it at year zero. Right. Well, and, you, well, that's good for a brain like yours. Yeah. You know, like, There's a career here. Yeah, I can do stuff with. Yeah, this. yeah. So that that's that's how the the, the stand up thing started. And I think to get back to your question about the book. Yeah. And this aha moment, the time at the Onion was the first time that I had one job that kind of captured all the things I love to do. Right. I could do the politics thing. And I had my own political blog with a friend called Jack and Jill Politics, and we were killing it there. But it wasn't. It was witty some, but it wasn't like comedy comedy. It right. was like a black-oriented U.S. political blog. Let's get this done. Yeah. And I had my- There are st- issues at hand. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I had my stand-up thing going on, and I'm climbing those ranks. Uh, Tony V was a huge mentor. Tim McIntyre uh, up in, in Boston and Cambridge that were you know helping open doors. Jonathan Gates gave me some great advice really early on. Which was- Takes ten years. Be patient. <laughs> yeah. To find your voice yeah. and figure out. And that's what you're a doing. that's a low ball number. Yeah. And he, <laughs> the other thing he said that's you know it's the things you hear that you know are true. The things you have to experience to yeah. believe it. Yeah. Um. I think in this case it worked both ways. He's like, look, don't bullshit. Like, talk about the things you know. Right. If you try to be somebody else, the audience will smell you out. They won't go with you. They won't believe you. You're done. Yeah. So don't try to be. Who, if yeah, you're a newsy, if nerdy guy, if you're gonna be, be a tr- that. If you're going to be a truth guy, be a truth guy. Yeah. If you're going to be a clown, then that's other Then be thing. a clown. Yeah, yeah. And love the clown and yeah. embrace all that. Yeah. Don't try, you yeah. know, to, yeah. to, to lie. Yeah. By being something you're not. That was, that was, it was cool to hear very early. Um, so the Onion thing, it gave me, I was the web editor. So I oversaw all this digital stuff. Mm-hmm. And what are we going to do on Facebook? And how does the website look? And how can we be funny on an iPhone? Right. So beyond just putting the articles on an iPhone right. screen. That's not that right. interesting. Right. Tweeting a link to an Onion headline isn't that interesting. Right. How do you push the envelope? That was cool to think about. My little strategy nerd brain loved that. Yeah. And the comedian in me loved it too. Yeah. Then it was, oh, you got this political stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I ran the election coverage in 2008. That was the main job. Online? Pull, pull that together. Yeah. War for the White House. Integrate what's being done. Come up with new features, new ways to be funny. We did map jokes. We did Twitter jokes. We started blogging and created yeah. these blogger characters yeah. to cover the campaign from a ridiculous point of view. That was kind of cool. Um, and I got to do the comedy. Like, it's obviously a comedy institution. Yeah. So I learned. I got to be around some of the best, funniest people that I've ever worked with. And the book was a way to keep doing that kind of integration narrower and for me. Well, that sounds amazing, man. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it was quite a journey. Are you going to do another book? Someday. But you're okay right now. For now, I'm good. Now we're doing the the we're doing the cultivated wit thing. We're, we're trying to innovate in comedy and digital and create new forms of all this stuff with the hackathons and the apps and the well, good for you everything. for not limiting yourself. <laughs> and maybe there will be some, uh, you know, the thing that I didn't do through the lampoon mm-hmm. um, and kind of pursue the, the 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 storytelling for screen. Yeah, there's a possibility of that. Uh, there's never any guarantees. That that works out. I have, a, have enough yeah, people yeah, in this yeah, business yeah, to know. Yeah, no, you, you just can't. keep swinging. Don't hang your hopes on that. No, Not on show business. I got a lot of hooks to put my head on. Also, I wear a hoodie. Yeah, so. well, you're, you're covered. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Baratunda. Thank you so much, Mark. It was great. It was a pleasure.
That's our show, folks. I hope you like that. I hope we learned. Good guy. Funny guy. Very bright guy. Enjoyed that chat a lot. Hope you did. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Get on that mailing list. Get the app. Get that free app. Upgrade to premium. You can you can stream all 400 episodes that you can't get otherwise. Only the most recent 50 are available for free. Deaf Black Cat, I'm waiting for you. Boomer lives, as we all know. I'll see you in Rochester. I'll see you in Toronto. See you back in L.A. I'm around. I'll see you at the L.A. Podfest. Oh, boy. I'm going to go inside and uh, be nice to my fiance and uh, see if that works. Boomer lives! <laughs>